And I, I've never forgotten the moment when both Havel and Dubček, the hero of 68, were together on stage and the news came through that the whole Politburo had resigned and everybody erupted in applause. Havel and Dubček, you know, the man of 89 and the man of 68, embraced very warmly. Champagne was produced from somewhere. It was like a fairy tale. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Professor Timothy Garton-Ash is a British historian, author, commentator and professor of European studies at Oxford University. Professor Garton-Ash witnessed some of the most critical moments in the Eastern Bloc during the 1980s as these populations threw off communist rule. He provides us with vivid details of his time in East Germany, Gdansk in Poland in 1980 when the first free trade union in the Eastern Bloc was formed, and his time with then-distant Václav Havel when the Czechoslovak communist government resigned in 1989. Professor Garton-Ash genuinely had a front-row seat to history and provides us with fascinating and profound analysis of those incredible years. Now, I know some of you think this is my full-time job. Well, sadly it isn't, but I really do need your help to allow me to find the time to continue producing and preserving these Cold War stories. I'm asking listeners to pledge a monthly donation of at least $4, £3 or €3 Euros a month to help keep the podcast on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. You can cancel this pledge at any time. The donations would be made via Patreon and you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Timothy Garton-Ash to our Cold War Conversation. Now, I've read most of your books. In fact, I have three of them here on the table with me. And I was going to start off with with The File, which was, I think, the first book I read of yours, which is about your time in East Germany and your examination of your Stasi file. And I, I was interested to read in that, that pretty early on in your life or in in your student years i think you were you were tapped up by mi5 almost like a scene out of a le carré film the head of my undergraduate college approached me to see if i wanted effectively to become a, a spook i.e. work for mi6 and i was very intrigued by it i read a lot of graham green i went through most of the hoops and then I'm very glad to say, decided against it. Uh, and I would have hated it because I very much wanted to be a writer and to be completely independent. And, and that's the reason I decided against it. But what I would say is 
my fascination with Eastern Europe, which which came at an early age, was not sort of Lacariesque. It was not about the spying. It was about the dictatorship. That's what really got me, the sense that here were 100 million people who were suffering under sometimes quite Orwellian conditions, as I went on to find in East Germany. Yes, yes. So you you travel to berlin what what was your reason for for going to berlin the first time i crossed to east berlin was 1975 when i was 20 and i then went to live in berlin in 1978 uh i was writing a doctorate at oxford about the third reich about the nazi dictatorship i was fascinated by the question what people do about a dictatorship, what makes one person a resistance fighter and another a collaborator. And what I discovered very quickly was that people were facing exactly these dilemmas in real time, just the other side of the Berlin Wall. So I ended up writing my first book, not about Berlin under Adolf Hitler, but about Berlin under Erich Honecker, and I went to live in East Berlin as a history student. So it was the dictatorship and what people do about a dictatorship, and indeed what we in the West could do to help and how to overcome the division symbolized by the Berlin Wall. That was what fascinated me. Right, right. And and when you first stayed in in Berlin, you, you were in the West and you you stay with uh, quite a number of interesting characters who, who you describe as the 68ers. That's right. So, of course, you know, we, we, we'd had, this was 78, uh, 68 was 10 years before. All around me were people who had been, as were on the barricades in 1968, which is, of course, very big in Berlin, West Berlin. Uh, some of them had very nearly become terrorists. I have, you know, friends who said I, I, I almost became a member of the Baden-Meinhof gang. What fascinated and appalled me was that they all lived with their backs to the Berlin Wall. They were looking for socialism, but they never went just the other side of the Berlin Wall to look at real existing socialism. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting, obviously, with post-Venda, the discovery that a number of the Red Army faction actually uh, lived in East Germany under assumed names as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the Stasi, as we know, supported them. Yeah, yeah. So you're researching in um, East Berlin. What, what difficulties did you have in trying to carry out the research you wanted to in East Berlin? Well, it was incredibly difficult. I mean, by the way, I have about five old dark blue British passports because they kept filling up with the frontier crossing stamps from Checkpoint Charlie and Friedrichstrasse because you got two every time you went over. And since I went over two or three times a week, you know, I kept having to get a new passport. So, so it was very difficult because it was a very tightly controlled, surveilled uh, uh, society, and particularly journalists. And my great good fortune was that I was a history student as far as they were concerned. And so even when I was collecting material to write articles and then to write this book about East Germany, um, I was formerly speaking a history student, and actually I was the first British student 
to go to East Berlin under a new cultural agreement between the UK and the German Democratic Republic, of which they were very proud of. So they treated me very well and then were deeply, deeply offended that I wrote a very critical book about East Germany, which was serialized a year later in Der Spiegel. And actually, there was an official diplomatic protest from the East German government to the British government about this book. I, 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 one of the nicest reviews I've ever received. <laughs> yeah. Now, you obviously were, were living in East Germany, and as you would expect, the Stasi opened a file on you which um, is obviously the, the centerpiece of your, your, your book, The File. And I've always amused by your code name. Yes, um, as was I. Um, <laughs> so, of course, you know, as all your listeners know, the cause of unification, which was East Germany joining West Germany and therefore West Germany taking over, we had this unique opportunity of the entire secret police files being very carefully and systematically opened. So nowhere else in the world ever have we had such an opportunity. And what happens is you apply and then you, you get permission and an official of the so-called Gauk Authority, named for Joachim Gauk, the head of it, has read the file before you and done photocopies, blacking out the names, the real names of various people and any personal details. So I go into this room, sit down at a plastic wood table, and Frau Schultz says to me, Guten Tag, Herr Gartnash, you have a very interesting file, and sort of giggles. And then I look at the cover, and it says OPK, and then, in quotes, Romeo. And I said, what's this? And she said, well, that was your code name. Now, I have to say there are two versions of this. One is the obvious one. The other, which I actually have to admit is more plausible, is that my car at that time was an Alfa Romeo. <laughs> ah. so, so there's a prosaic um, explanation, although I'm quite happy to, to stick with a romantic one. Yeah, you wouldn't expect a better code name than that. How how did you feel when that file sat on the desk in front of you and you were about to open it? So I, as I recount in the book, I suddenly had a, a moment of panic almost because I had an East German girlfriend and I remembered a particular moment where... We'd been together in my room in East Berlin, which was a, a front room with a large window. And we were making love. And she suddenly got up and opened the curtains and turned the light on. And I thought, cripes, was she actually an informer for the Stasi? Was she doing that so they could get, you know, covert photographs of me and then try to compromise me? I'm very glad to say that wasn't there, but there was a real nervousness about it. By the way, later on when I was writing the book, I went back and and and, and looked her up again, and I, I, I sort of slightly hesitantly say, why did you turn on the light? And she said, I wanted to see your face. 
fairly sufficient explanation. But that gives a sense of the paranoia, right? But also I was very worried that I would find that that close friends had been informing on me. Because of course that was that's a real shocker of reading your Stasi file, is finding people have informed on you. There was one, although I'm glad to say only one, who I would rarely have called a friend. Right. Yeah, we come on to some of the the contents in there. But one of the things that did make me laugh is at the time you were writing for The Spectator and they misspelt it as Spectre. The man from Spectre. Remember (laughs) the the old TV series. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Robert Vaughan. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, no, that that intrigued me. But also some, some of the people that you met while you were in um, East Berlin. The the one that I'm particularly intrigued in is, is Alice or Litzy Coleman, who was Kim Philby's first wife. Absolutely fascinating. So she was very probably the person who really got him into the spying business. And uh, this was 1930s Vienna, uh, fascism was on the rise. The communists were the good bu- good guys. And there was a kind of romantic involvement in the communist cause. I mean, of course, it started at Cambridge. And she was a very composed, still elegant, uh, articulate, feisty uh, woman who I tried in vain to draw on the subject of Kim Philby. The, the, the only thing she would say was that, you know, Kim was very reserved, which I think counts as the understatement of the decade. Presumably she still believed in, in the socialist ideals, or did you get any indication that if they'd known what was going on in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, they might have gone down a different path? I don't think she would tell me that she didn't, but I'm sure she had a very, very clear idea of the horrors that had happened under Stalinism and I you know was 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 quite critical. But but there's a really interesting point there, Ian, which I do want to make, which is that, you know, during during my time, because I was also working on the Third Reich, I met old communists and old Nazis. Indeed, I met Albert Speer on one memorable occasion. I have never met, so to speak, a noble old fascist, because the, the, the vision of society, the ideal of fascism, of Nazism, was itself an oppressive and inhuman one, um, right? Albert Speer was one of the coldest, atheist human beings I've ever met. But with these old communists, whether they'd stayed in the party or particularly if they'd left it, you still felt the old idealism because the original ideal was an ideal of liberty and equality, not of the oppression of of other races by, by, by Ubermenschen. So I think that's a really important point. These people could be really quite simpatical. And that was true of one of the people who informed on me, who I was most sad about, I don't know if perhaps I can mention that story to you now. Yeah, go ahead. Because it, it connects. So this was a, 
a really elegant, white-haired, cultured old German-Jewish lady who had joined the Communist Party in Berlin in the 1930s, which took a lot of courage as a young Jewish girl. Hitler had come to power. She and her husband fled to the Soviet Union. Husband was in the camps, Stalin's camps, for many, many years and died uh, later from you know the, the damage to his health. She was in a labor army. They'd suffered terribly. Then they came back to East Germany. Things went well, but the husband died. They had a child. That son fled to the West soon before the Berlin Wall was thrown up. She couldn't, of course, go and visit him. And then the Stasi came to her and said, Frau Zonzo, we know you're a good comrade. We know your son is in the West. Just tell us a little about cultural life in East Germany. We know you have good connections with artists and writers and actors. And then maybe you can go and visit your son. Right? So mm. it's a classic illustration of recruitment. Partly, you know, you, you, you believe in the cause, but also a clear blackmail. And so she started very sort of innocuous informing on cultural life. And then, you know, like a fisherman playing in a fish, they gradually reeled her in so that in the end she was informing in considerable detail on on people like me. It's such a tragic story because here was a really noble, idealistic young woman and, you know, that's where she ends up. And I, th- I think that's an interesting piece of the book because you you feel because you confront her over the contents of the of the file, and afterwards you feel some some guilt, particularly with you know you you ju- what you've just remarked on about the the period in the Soviet labor camp and her f- husband never re- recovering from um, his ordeal there. Yeah, I mean, listen, in absolutely, you know. Notionally, in the categories of the law on the Stasi files, I'm a victim and she's a perpetrator or a collaborator. But she was much more a victim than I was. You know, the worst that happened to me was that I was kicked out of the country and and refused re-entry for a number of years in the 1980s because they were so, you know, annoyed with me. But that didn't really damage my life significantly at all, whereas she had really, really suffered. So, you know, behind these simple categories of the victim and the perpetrator, you always have to look at the individual story. Um, another quick story, which, which I think illustrates this, which I'm not sure if I put in the book. One of the great heroes of, of 1989 in East Germany was a guy called Jens Reich, who was a, a scientist who led the civic movement. Um, um, he told me that a friend of his who'd been having an affair back in the old East Germany days, the Stasi had approached him and said, you know, we know you're having an affair. We're going to tell your wife. That'll be the end of your marriage. So he agreed to inform on Jens, but he immediately came to Jens and said, listen, this is what's happened. They've got me by the short and curlies. I'm going to have to do this but let's agree what I report. And so, you know, for months and years, they agreed what he was going to report on, on Jens Reich. And as Jens said, if, if he, Jens Reich, had no longer been alive, nobody would have believed that story. 
It's a really interesting story there. Um, I, I wanted to move on to Poland. Solidarność, solidarity movement had erupted in Poland, and I can't tell you how, Ian, how unexpected and surprising and amazing that was. You know, I mean, Eastern Europe in 1979 was still very grey, very much under control of the Soviet Union and the communist regimes, quite Orwellian in many ways in places like East Germany, uh, Romania. Poland was somewhat different, but, you know, the notion that suddenly you could have a, a 10 million strong movement for freedom, which would last 16 months, this was totally unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it it was shocking looking from the outside and seeing how far solidarity got. Now, you you go to Gdansk, you're, you're on holiday, actually, in Italy, I believe, and you hear about the strikes and um, realise that you, you need to be there and you get to Gdansk. Can you describe the atmosphere in Gdansk and the scene when you first entered the uh, shipyard? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, as soon as I heard about the strikes on the BBC World Service, shortwave radio, right, I get on a train to Berlin. I actually got my visa at the Polish consulate in East Berlin. And when the guy asked me why I wanted to go, I said, well, I, I want to study the Polish resistance to Hitler. So the purpose of visit on the visa form said Polish resistance, <laughs> which I was rather pleased Brilliant. with. And then got to Warsaw and then straight up to Gdańsk. A bright, warm August day. We get to the shipyard, crowds of people outside, the shipyard gates festooned with flowers and a picture of Pope John Paul II. And we give our names and say we're journalists and the gate opens and there are two lines of shipyard workers in blue overalls, unshaven, tarred but determined, and they applaud us on the way in as if we had brought the diplomatic support of our countries to this occupation strike. It was utterly, utterly unforgettable. And the atmosphere in this huge shipyard with these enormous shipyard cranes and half-finished, you know, ferries and boats all around us was a mixture. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War Um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Of tremendous elation and excitement, 
music playing, lots of joking. Uh, I remember at one point over the Tannoy system came the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. We all live in a yellow submarine. (laughs) On the one hand, but on the other hand, enormous tension. Because what you have to remember is that at this very, very place, just in front of this shipyard gate, only 10 years before, in December 1970, shipyard workers had been shot by the Polish army and security forces when they tried to go out to, 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 to protest, to demonstrate on, 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 on the streets. And of course, behind the communist regime, there was a Soviet Union and the fear of Soviet intervention. The Soviets had, after all, invaded Czechoslovakia only 12 years before. So it was this really extraordinary mixture of fate, of festival, and extreme tension, like a siege. Yeah, I, th- I think you describe it in, in your book, The Polish Revolution, as the, the workers are described as like extras in an Eisenstein film. And you also talk about their quiet dignity, which was a really great, created a really strong image for me. Yes. I mean, the extraordinary thing, and I've seen this again in 1989, is that in these sort of revolutionary moments, people sometimes do look exactly like people in the Eisenstein film, right? They, they strike poses uh, like, 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 like the great revolutionary figures. But, you know, dignity in 1980, which, by the way, for me, was really a formative experience. Uh, people often associate my name with 1989, which was a, an amazing moment, of course. But people forget that Poland was the icebreaker. And this was really the first attempted revolution in Central Europe, which led directly to 1989. And it was all about recovering dignity, what the Polish Pope had preached on his first pilgrimage to his native land the year before. So, for example, the communist authorities very quickly tried to buy off the strikers by offering them more money, quite a lot more money. And they said, no, 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 this is not about money. This is about getting a memorial outside those gates to the shipyard workers who were killed in 1970. And it's about having independent trade unions. Not about money. It's about dignity. Yeah. Yeah. What did you make of the the strike leaders? Well, these were genuinely workers. This was, in its origins, genuinely a workers' revolution, which is very unusual, right? I mean, the Bolshevik Revolution or the seizure of power by communists in in Eastern Europe in the 1940s were not genuinely workers' uh, revolutions. Lech Wałęsa was this skinny, mobile wag. He was a kind of, you know, the works wag, the guy you'd go down to the pub with for a really good gas. Um, And uh, he was very funny and very quick. And uh, you see him today, this stout, portly, stiff, you know, ex-presidential figure, and you have no idea of what the 38-year-old was like. 
as I say in the book, he had a touch of Charlie Chaplin about him too. Did, did you interview him? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Of course, I I I, I talked to all of them, um, and they were they were really you know e- extraordinary figures. I mean, um, Wałęsa. I mean, I now speak fluent Polish, but even if you have fluent Polish, uh, he, he's often quite difficult to understand. He's really all over the place. I remember talking to someone who had to translate him, interpret him for Margaret Thatcher. And he said it was the most difficult two hours of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because she makes quite a memorable visit there, I think, in 88. Um, at the time, do, do you think they really believed that they would be successful? In 1980? In 1980, yes, sorry. It depends very much what we mean by success here, because, you know, looking back from now, we think of success as being getting rid of the communists and, uh, you know, becoming a democracy. That nobody thought was in the cards in 1980-81. The question then was, you know, are we going to get another month or another two months? I think they thought after, say, six months, that there was just a chance that they could get some kind of a compromise, some kind of a modus vivendi with the communist authorities. And, of course, in that they ultimately failed. But I don't think it was a failure, because to have 16 months of freedom is not a failure, right? So take Mm. Belarus today. Maybe Lukashenko will ultimately succeed in clamping down. Uh, for some years to come, who knows? He has, you know, the army and security forces on his side, and Putin behind him. But those people in Belarus will have had two months of freedom, three months of freedom, and that changes a country forever. Poland, after those sixteen months, was just a completely different country. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you you say it started as a as a as a workers' strike, but then they do get assistance from the um, intelligentsia, so like Jacek Kuron and... Bronislaw Geremek, Tadej Mazowiecki, all the people who would then play a really leading role in 1989. You know, what was so unique and unprecedented about this moment was that three classes, if you will, um, who had so often been divided in East European history, namely the, at the time we still said the peasants, the farmers, and many of them were actually, you know, peasants in a classical European sense, the workers and the intelligentsia, those people with higher education, the very important large group of people in all East European countries, all came together in one big movement called Solidarity, right? That had never happened before. And what is more, Catholics and socialists came together. You know, the secular left and the yeah. Catholics all came together. So it was it was an extraordinary experience of, the clue is in the name, Solidarity, right? It was unbelievably inspiring to see such different people working together. There was an amazing spirit. It's rather like what George Orwell describes on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. 
Yes, I think you you describe it in the book as your Spain or something. I can't remember exactly how. It... Yes, as my Spain. So what I meant by that, I mean, my great inspiration as a political writer was George Orwell, still is, and, and, and particularly homage to Catalonia, yeah. right? And so what Orwell does, he doesn't pretend to be impartial. He says, I'm on the Republican side. I'm on the Democratic side. But uh, I've told you what side I'm on, and I'm going to be honest with you about what I saw and heard. And I'm, in a way, going to be most critical of my own side, just because it is my own side. And that's what I tried to do in Poland. I mean, there was no question that I was on the solidarity side, 200%. And indeed, you know, later in the 1980s, I would bring in wads of dollars and messages and so on for the underground solidarity and Samistat publishing and so on. I mean, I, I make no apology for that. I was a you know courier to and from the free world, um, coming from foundations, by the way, not from the CIA, in case anyone thinks that was. Um, so, so I was absolutely up, but I tried to be as honest as I could. I spoke to people on the regime side, gave their point of view, and I don't think I was too starry-eyed about about solidarity itself. No, no. And were were you in the room when the historic agreement was signed with uh, Let Valencia's ridiculously large uh, pen? I, I I spent many days in that room, but my visa ran out, so I wasn't actually there for that moment. You know, one thing people forget about the Cold War, particularly younger Europeans who are used just to sort of, you know, waking up on Friday morning and booking an easy jet flight to Tallinn or, or Krakow, is we spent unbelievable amounts of time just trying to get the bloody visas. Um, you know, life was dominated by the quest for the visa. Yeah, yeah. Now, you do return to Poland on a, a number of occasions. I think uh, you come over for the Pope's visit post the declaration of martial law. That was just extraordinary, next to the Lenin shipyard in August 1980. So this society which has gone through martial law, my friends have been interned or imprisoned or in exile, there's a, there's a great sense of hopelessness, but also a sort of grim determination to carry on. And suddenly in comes the Pope, the man in white. There we are in front of the Jasnagora, the amazing monastery in Częstochowa. There's hundreds of thousands of people, all with national flags and pictures of the Black Madonna and, of course, Solidarność flags, um, waiting for him, full of nervous expectation. And there he appears, the white figure on the distant steps, the dais, in front of the red brick walls of the fortress monastery. And the, the, the crowds in these moments have an extraordinary ability to speak with one voice as if they are one person. And so people started saying, we can't hear you properly. And the Pope said, OK, I'm coming nearer. And so he walks down the steps. And then the crowd starts chanting, a chair for the Pope, a chair for the Pope. And so some monk stumbles after him with a chair and he'd established this extraordinary contact. You know, it was as if it was a one-to-one conversation between uh, John Paul II, who was a great actor. John Gielgud said his, 
his delivery was theatrically perfect, uh, and these hundreds of thousands of people. And he, he gave them back their hope. He said, we need to persevere in the hope. And that is one of the things that kept, you know, the hopes of solidarity alive through those very dark years, sort of into 1984. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in and in eighty four, you return, but for a, a sadder occasion. Well, that's right. So, I mean, I was you know going in whenever I could get a visa, and um, I had actually I think been in one time before in eighty four. Um, now, one of the people I'd met on the occasion of the Pope's visit in eighty three was an extraordinary, intense, slim priest called Father Yezhi Popiewuszko. And Yezhi Popiewuszko had become the kind of solidarity chaplain of the big steelworks in Warsaw, the Huta Warszawa uh, 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 steelworks. Um, and he was very militant, particularly fired up with the Pope. I remember him saying to me, the kingdom of Satan must fall. What do I have to fear? He actually said to me. Well, a year later, we learned what he had to fear because he was kidnapped by three rogue secret policemen, thrown into the boot of a car, repeatedly beaten up until he was probably unconscious. And then his body was weighted down with a bag of heavy stones and he was thrown into a reservoir, probably still alive at the moment he was thrown into the water and, of course, drowned. And th- this was something so utterly shocking, even for people who'd been through martial law. Uh, even the regime was, was was really upset by it, I have to say, because uh, the, the secret police were subsequently put on trial. And I attended the funeral for Yezhi Popovyoshko, which is the most amazing, emotional, patriotic, religious political event as only the Poles can do, you know. Um, I mean, the moment I will never forget was an engineer at the steelworks at Varsava, who'd been a friend of his. As the church bells were ringing, this guy said, Jurek, which is a familiar name, form of, of Yezhi, it's rather like saying like Jim or Bill, right? He said, Jurek, can you hear how the bells of freedom ring. Wow. Such an amazing moment. Yeah. But freedom still seemed a long way away. Remember, it wasn't Mr. Gorbachev in the Kremlin. That was November 1984. It was Mr. Chernenko. And honestly, at that time, it's really important to remember, most of us, including most of my dissident friends all across Eastern Europe in Poland and Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, who I got to know in Hungary, uh, all of them thought the Soviet Union would be with us for decades to come. Yeah, and so did I, certainly, certainly. It's really important to remember that Poland was the icebreaker for the rest of Central Europe in this. I mean, it was 10 years hard struggle in Poland. And actually, before 89, I was there in 1988, and witnessed another occupation strike in the Lenin shipyard. The shipyard was 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 blocked off by by riot police, 
so you couldn't go in through the gate. But a couple of shipyard workers actually smuggled me over a wall around the back of the shipyard. And I remember walking, you know, underneath the hulls of vast half-finished tankers and right the way through to the strike headquarters where I found Lech Wałęsa sound asleep flat on the floor <laughs> in his carpet slippers, <laughs> snoring, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, when he'd woken up, you know, he started, um, we started talking and he started saying what they were going to do next. Um, Tadeusz Mazowiecki, one of his key advisors, subsequently the first non-communist prime minister uh, of Poland for, 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 for more than 40 years, w- was advising him. And I'd never forget Bawensa saying to Tadeusz Ma- Mazowiecki, Panie uh, Tadeuszu, Mr. Tadeusz, you're the man for negotiations. You're the man for wisdom. Now, this was partly because he thought you needed an intellectual to do the negotiations, but also because Bawensa, with his superb political instinct, he had a brilliant political instinct, understood that they weren't going to win this time. And they'd have to cut sort of some sort of a deal. And in the end, they walked out of the shipyard arm in arm behind a large wooden cross. But it looked as if they'd been defeated. But actually, that was one of the moments when General Yaroselsky and the authorities realized solidarity is not dead. Solidarity is coming back. We cannot recover the economy without getting the West to lift its sanctions. Gorbachev is encouraging us to do our own thing. So let's start putting out feelers to see if we can have a negotiation. And my dear friend, much missed great historian and solidarity advisor, Bronisław Geremek, subsequently a Polish foreign minister, was was one of the people who invented this idea of a round table negotiation. So the theory was all the different forces in Polish society, the church, the unions, official, etc., etc., were all coming together at a round table. Um, the round table, by the way, still exists. You can go and visit it in Warsaw, a rather sort of cheap bit of carpentry. <laughs> but of course, actually, Ian, as I said at the time, the round table was was actually a, a rectangular table. There were basically two sides, solidarity and the communist authorities. And what came out of that was an agreement which saw the legalization of solidarity, but crucially, it saw agreement to a, a semi-free election, which happened on the 4th of June, 1989. And this was absolutely the moment of breakthrough because solidarity in that election won every seat they could possibly have won, by one actually, but almost every seat, the 99 out of 100 seats in the upper house. And that was a moment at which the authorities more or less threw up their hands and said, you know, that's it. I mean, they, they, they tried to form a a government with a communist prime minister, but failed. So that really was the 4th of June, 1989, was the absolute spectacular moment of breakthrough. And I've never forgotten going to vote with my Samizdat publisher, my underground publisher, and seeing the great photos, which shows 
Gary Cooper in in high noon and Gary Cooper marching down you know Main Street wearing but wearing a Solidarność badge and it said um high noon 4th of June 1989 yeah that's a very evocative poster i i've i've seen i've seen that poster and i make sure we uh, show that in 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 the show notes and i i 100% agree with you that that poland was the you know the 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 icebreaker as you describe it without poland the berlin wall doesn't fall you know the the rest of that domino effect probably wouldn't have happened yes i mean the poles like to say and it's a bit self congratulatory but i think it's true that uh, solidarność punched the first hole in the berlin wall of course none of it could have happened without gorbachev they never succeeded without gorbachev the other bit of that which is really important is of course the hungarian bit hungary of course had been and again i was going there regularly i was much more tolerant uh, a much more open much more reform minded regime by 89 they were already starting a, a, a negotiated transition um the reform minded leaders had basically decided that um they needed to start switching sides and develop good relations with germany particularly and you know the, the what was still the west european community but of course the key thing they did was to cut the the iron curtain open the iron curtain to austria and when i say cut literally cut the barbed wire with huge wire cutters and the son of one of my best friends are in east berlin actually escaped across that frontier from hungary to austria and that was so crucial because it kickstarted the mass protests in east germany yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um i wanted to talk about the velvet revolution and uh, similar to the my first question with with Poland is what was the atmosphere like when you arrived in Prague? So I had been going in and out of Prague throughout the nineteen eighties. My friends, the dissidents, were working as stokers or watchmen. Um, you would meet them in overalls or in their off duty hours. Václav Havel had been in and out of prison. The first time I met him, he'd just come out from a four-year prison sentence. Uh, it, it was, I compared it to being under a thick layer of ice. So while things were moving in Poland and Hungary, nothing had seemed to be moving in Czechoslovakia. A very small, Charter 77 was a very small group of, 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 of dissidents, right? And, and indeed, not so much is moving, even in early 89. It's very much a frozen regime and only a few thousand protesters. But Poland goes, Hungary goes, East Germany goes, and then there I am in East Berlin, and I read the news that a big student demonstration has been broken up in Prague 
and one student has been killed, which, by the way, turned out to be untrue. So I immediately go off to the Czech consulate in East Berlin, get a visa, take the train, track down Václav Havel in his favorite basement pub. He was a great man for the, for the pub and many uh, mugs of beer and, and chasers like Beherovka. He was a bohemian in both senses, as someone who lived in, that is, Bohemia and, and a bohemian in his lifestyle. And um, we were just sitting and having a drink, and I, I, I said to him, you know, Václav, in Poland it took 10 years, in Hungary it took 10 months, in East Germany it took 10 weeks, maybe here it will take 10 days. And he, he so much liked that, Bon mot, that he called over the Samizdat video team and had me repeat that to camera. I've still got the film of it. Um, and, and then he was asked to comment and he said it'd be great if it were true, which by the way, it very nearly was because it took a little bit longer. But by mid-December, less than a month thereafter, it was all over and he was the candidate for president. And then we moved to the Magic Lantern Theatre, which suitably enough for our playwright, was the headquarters of the revolution. And the whole thing was unbelievably theatrical. The press conferences were held from the stage of the theatre. There was still the stage set for the, the Minotaur. Hava <laughs> uh, would emerge through the tunnel, the Minotaur's tunnel, to speak to us. And I, I've never forgotten the moment when both Havel and Dubček, the hero of 68, were together on stage and the news came through that the whole Politburo had resigned and everybody erupted in applause, including including all the foreign press, of course. Uh, Havel and Dubček, you know, the man of 89 and the man of 68, embraced very warmly. Champagne was produced from somewhere. It was like a fairy tale. And then you would go out onto Wenceslas Square, 300,000 people all waving their keys to make the sound of Chinese bells. I mean, it was, it was a fairy tale and, and, and magical and, and sort of became the archetypal Velvet Revolution. Uh, but by the way, it was the first one to be called a Velvet Revolution. And it was probably a French journalist who invented the term, which was then taken up by the Czechs. But it was also, in some sense, um, unrepresentative because the Berlin Wall had already fallen. Everyone could see that the Soviet bloc was finished in its original form. I mean, if you want to put a date to the end of the Cold War, it has to be the 9th of November 1989 in Berlin, right? So, so it was a sort of magical theatrical postscript. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Harvel is a, an interesting character. I, I, I always think. I mean, what, what was his leadership style like? If you met him, he, he was incredibly courteous and seemed tremendously diffident, soft-spoken, always apologetic, always had time for everyone, and yet he had an absolutely unique authority, and in these sort of chaotic situations with everybody piling in, uh, it was, if you like, a sort of guided democracy, right? Because mm. he just had, partly because of his personality, 
partly because of his biography and also because of his international reputation, his fame, if you like. He just had a unique authority and there was briefly an idea that Dubček might be, so to speak, the democratic candidate for president. But but Dubček was an old man and a man of 68. And uh, apart from Dubček, it, it just had to be Havel. I remember we were together at the moment when students had started producing uh, little badges saying Havel Narad, which means Havel to the castle, i.e. Havel for president. And Václav very sort of diffidently and almost apologetically said, oh, that's rather nice. Could I have one? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, six weeks later, there he was being inaugurated uh, in a grand ceremony in Prague Castle in a very rapidly um, tailor-made suit, famously with trousers that were much too short. Because until then he'd only worn jeans and sweaters, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, you can see he's he's uncomfortable wearing a suit. Um with Alexander Dubček, I mean he he still was in favour of some form of communism, even in nineteen eighty nine, wasn't he? You know, it's pretty hard to say what I mean, I think his socialism with a human face was getting on towards uh, a sort of democratic socialism or social democracy. But the much more important point is that Gorbachev thought that you could still have socialism with a human face. Uh, Gorbachev was friends with a man called Zdenek Mlinaj, who'd been one of the key thinkers of 1968. They'd studied together in Moscow. Um, and one reason Gorbachev let things so, go so far in Eastern Europe was precisely that he thought that you could reach a better socialism, socialism with a human face. He thought there was a sort of halfway house where you'd still have communist rule, but it'd be quite democratic and quite humane, which was an illusion. And so I always like to say that in 1989, the Central Europeans were the beneficiaries of their own illusions 21 years before in 1968, right? Because they had developed this idea of the socialism with the human face, which Gorbachev still believed in, but most Central Europeans did not. And indeed, on the first edition of The Magic Lantern, my book about the the Velvet Revolutions, uh, we show a poster uh, uh, a hand-drawn poster I saw in Prague during the Velvet Revolution, which had 68 rotated for 180 degrees, which, of course, makes 89. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought of that. Um, when, when you look back over your time in, in Eastern Europe through this critical period, what is your most vivid memory? Big question. (laughs) There are so many because, honestly, it was, what, 12, even 15 years of the most intense and formative experience of my life. So it's very difficult to single out one. (laughs) But if you put a pistol to my head, 
Whereas most people would expect me to say the fall of the wall or the Velvet Revolution with Václav Havel, which are, of course, great memories, but it would have to be that day in August 1980 when Brezhnev was still in the Kremlin, the Cold War was getting even colder there was a danger of nuclear war. We thought the Red Army might march in any day. No one could imagine that the Berlin Wall would come down uh, within 10 years. But here were these people, these quote-unquote ordinary people, workers and farmers, standing up for freedom and fighting for the freedom of their country. And I will never forget that day in the August sunlight. That's a great, a great image. Um, I had a number of questions from people who asked them on Twitter. The first one is, how did you have the presence of mind in 1989 and 1980 to write everything down as it was happening? <laughs> because I was by training a historian and what I was setting out to do was to be a very contemporary historian, what I called a historian of the present. And so that was my main job, was to write everything down in notebook after notebook. By the way, I'm now working on a, a personal history of contemporary Europe, and I have just meters and meters of notebooks uh, in which I really did just write it all down. Wow. Well, so you, you didn't use cassette recorder or anything like that. It's all handwritten. So uh, what many people today will need to be reminded is we didn't have smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> if only you did. Imagine what you would have captured. <laughs> I, well, that's right. I think they're a great tool for the contemporary historian, but the technology was very primitive. So I did have a cassette recorder and I would use it, you know, if I went off to interview the head of government or something. And, and I do have some sound recordings from the time, but for the most part, it was the old fashioned reporter notebook, writing it down at the time. Um, and, and here I am, you know, 40 years later, deciphering my scroll. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the next question we had was, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Eastern Bloc owes a great debt to Jan Palak. Why is he not a household name? You know, that's a, a, a great question. So just to remind your listeners, Jan Palak was a student in Prague who, in protest against the Soviet invasion, occupation of Czechoslovakia, set fire to himself on Wenceslas Square in 1969 and uh, died subsequently from his burns, uh, a really tragic story. And there is a sort of Kafkaesque postscript to this, which, funnily enough, only today I was writing about for my, for my new book, which is that he, he was buried in Prague, and of course his grave became a place of pilgrimage, as you would expect. So one night, the secret police just removed his body, 
had it cremated, delivered the urn to his mother in a small country town, and buried an old woman from a care home, a woman called Marie Yedlichkova, in his place. So the next time someone turned up, it was Marie Yedlichkova's grave. I mean, isn't that an Orwellian, a Kafkaesque moment? Oh. But they weren't going to be defeated. So they put the flowers and the candles and the signs saying, we remember on the grave of Marie Yedlichkova. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, I can feel a hair standing up on the nape of my neck when I tell that story. And I actually went and found that grave. And just across the road, Franz Kafka is buried in the Jewish graveyard. So I think the reason he's not remembered enough as he should be is that that was, as it were, from the heroic period of resistance after the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia which in a sense failed because you then had 20 years of so-called normalization. And it, it, it stands as a kind of a moment of heroic martyrdom, whereas because of the Velvet Revolution and Havel, what people really associate with Czechoslovakia now, with Prague specifically, is the successful revolution. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you're right. That that period of '68 is certainly overshadowed by '89, and those other periods like Poland in 1970, and you know all, all of those other. They they, re- they really are, I think, and I think an awful lot of people. If you said the Prague Spring, they wouldn't know which year that was '68, or even if you said the Hungarian Revolution 1956, which was another great very courageous uprising. I think that's been forgotten. Now, at the time, up to 89, those were the dates we everyone knew and everyone thought of. 53 in East Berlin, mm. 56 in Budapest, 68 in Prague, 70 on the Baltic coast, um, 80 Poland. You know, th- those were the milestones. Um, but now it's as if the story begins in 89. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the uh, designs behind this podcast is to make people aware there's more to uh, the Cold War than uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Well, exactly. And also, it's really important to remind people that we didn't know how the story was going to, how this movie ends. And, you know, the tension, the excitement, the hope, the fear, all came from that not knowing. Uh, and it's so difficult to recapture those emotions, even for me, let alone for someone who's younger today, when you know how the movie ends. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, the next question is, the collaboration of Czech and Polish dissidents is well known, but was there a broader regional collaboration of anti-communist groups or did everyone stew in their own source? There wasn't what one would call a regional collaboration, because that was too difficult to organise. But there were lots of bilateral connections. So, for example, there were a couple of East German dissidents who were particularly interested in Poland and had close ties with Poland. And in particular, the the dissidents in Hungary uh, 
were absolutely fascinated by Poland. I remember Laszlo Reich, who was a great friend of mine, um, uh, actually going several times to Poland in the early 1980s. And one of those young opposition figures who was really inspired by Poland, by solidarity, was Viktor Orban, <laughs> who yeah. then was a young liberal student leader. And to this day, he is still, even though he's become a kind of dictator, and uh, I'm absolutely horrified by what he's doing to his own country and by what he's become himself, interested only in power and money. But at that time, he was a sharp, idealistic-seeming young guy and um, in awe of what the Poles had done. So there were, there were lots of, as it were, bilateral connections. And worth also mentioning, this is important, that they also sort of themselves very much in a conversation with people like Andrea Malryk, uh, Nathan Sharansky, Andrei Sakharov, Yelena Bona, I mean, the, the great Soviet dissidents, you know, for, for my friend Adam Michnik and others, they were as much a reference point as uh, anyone elsewhere in Eastern Europe. My view is is that the Helsinki Accords is is one of the critical areas that helps these dissident groups at least have some defence from the authoritarian governments they're battling against. Yeah, that is true, although there's also um, a bit of a Helsinki mythology. Remember that at the time, the Soviets regarded Helsinki as a great triumph because what it secured for them was recognition of the post-war territorial settlement and the division of Europe. Uh, that's how they saw it. And many dissidents felt betrayed. I remember conversations with people who felt betrayed and let down by it. And it wasn't Western policymakers who really developed the potential of Helsinki contained in its human rights provisions and the basket three on human contacts. It was East European oppositionists who suddenly thought, well, we can use this as a reference point. Hey, you published this on the front page of Neues Deutschland or um, uh, you know, Ruda Pravo or, or uh, Pravda, the, 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 the Communist Party papers. So we're simply asking for our rights under this international treaty. And then that was picked up by very brave and, and pioneering NGO activists in the West and by the Jimmy Carter administration. And so Helsinki only becomes the Helsinki we think of, i.e. the human rights thing, the thing that's supporting the campaign for human rights in, in the late 1970s. That, that wasn't what it was at the time in 1975. Right, right. One last question, um, which is, what was particular about Poland that allowed such an organisation like Solidarność to flourish and was organised resistance more widespread in Poland than other Eastern Bloc countries, especially East Germany? Unambiguously, yes. Uh, um, that's what fascinated me coming from East Germany, where there was a 
the tiny handful of outright dissidents to a country where, you know, Orwell's 1984 was being read in churches. And, of course, simple questions require complicated answers, but a, 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 a few unique features of Poland. Firstly, private farming and some parts of the private sector and the economy were never fully collectivized and abolished. Secondly, the Catholic Church, which was enormously powerful and had traditionally for centuries been the bearer of, as it were, the mission of, the nas- of national independence. So you had these powerful forces that were much more independent of the communist state. And then you had this long tradition of dissidents and opposition, both workers and intellectuals, which goes back to the Polish October in 1956, Władysław Gomułka, reform communist like my great friend and Oxford colleague Lesia Korkowski, um, big 68 movement, people like Adam Michnik, Jacek Koron, the workers in 1970, the Workers' Defence Committee formed in 1976. So there's a long tradition of kind of building up of forms of, of popular resistance, which was an old Polish habit because for more than a century the Poles didn't have their own state so they were used to building an an underground state an alternative society all of that came together in the solidarity movement so that through the 1980s you just had tens and even hundreds of thousands of people who were involved in oppositional activity in Poland and that was completely unique in the whole Soviet world. Right. Professor Timothy Gartnash, thank you so much for sharing your your time with me. That has been a fascinating chat. It was a real pleasure. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. These are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Frederick Esposito, Jeffrey Jones and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.